the message with this uh, video clip, so uh, watch this if you would. There is an epidemic sweeping across our nation's churches, that is the shrinking population of their volunteers, alarming to say the least. To investigate the impact, we set up our cameras, removed all the volunteers, and followed a man we'll call Pete as he attended a local worship service without any volunteers. It started out like any other Sunday. Pete arrived five minutes late, as he always does. He assumed a greeter would open the door. He assumed wrong. Have you ever had church coffee that's been sitting around for a week? Well, Pete has. Deciding life was about more than just coffee, Pete finally answered the call to the mission field. But there was nobody picking up on the other end. To further complicate matters, Pete had to stoop down and get his own bulletin. He even had to hold and comfort a tiny human that he didn't understand. In fact, Pete didn't understand any of it. So, how can we as a church body keep this from happening? It seems there's a very simple fix. It takes a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. So won't you do it for your church? Do it for yourself. Wait! God bless him. Volunteer for Pete's sake. Maybe we should just skip the message and go straight to the response forms after after the video. All right, so. Um, we're in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, not a shock to you probably, uh, but uh, we covered the first six verses, and uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to walk through verses 7 through 16, uh, kind of going to do some tag team preaching again. I'm going to be on the front end this time, and Preston's going to be on the back end, but it's, it's essentially the, the, the same message in, in a couple of parts. I'm going to try to cover verses 7 through 12 today, and he's going to cover verses 13 through 16. But that video is appropriate because really the theme uh, of these verses is about using uh, our spiritual gifts uh, to serve the Lord, to build up his church. Uh, so I'm calling the, the message, Do Your Part. And so what we saw in verses 1 through 6 was a focus on the unity of the body of Christ. That's continued in verses 7 through 16, but kind of in a little different direction, because really the focus here is kind of diversity within unity, how that we're unique and we all have different spiritual gifts, but we're interdependent. It takes each of us using those gifts together for the body of Christ to function in the way that it needs to. And so um, in a sense, and, and this is really important that you get this, if, if you want the body of Christ, the whole, if you want True Life Church as a local church to be what it should be, to be everything that God wants it to be, you have to do your part. You have to use your gift. You're a member of the body of Christ. God has a role for you to play within that body. You're a piece of the puzzle, uh, so to speak, 
And if there's a piece missing, the, the puzzle is not going to be whole. You're important to uh, the body of Christ. So uh, let's look at what the scripture says here. Uh, let's start reading in verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He's quoting from Psalm 68 there. Now, and, and then now he kind of explains what he's saying. He says, now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower part of parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself, Jesus, and it's really emphasizing that by saying he himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for, meaning for the purpose of, the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the purpose of, again, the edifying of the body of Christ. And I'll just read the rest of the passage too. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. So that the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying, the building of itself up in love. So uh, when we looked at Ephesians 4.1, said the main idea is that we live out what Jesus expects of us by living out of what Jesus has done for us. And said that we're kind of going to try to apply that to the entire rest of the book. And so last week we talked about the fact that Jesus has made us one, so we're to live like we're one. And so building on that today in this passage then, I, I think this is, is the big idea, that we are gifted through the finished work of Jesus so we, all of us, can do the work of ministry in order to accomplish the work of building up the church. We're gifted through the finished work of Jesus. What I'm saying is, do you know that through the cross, Jesus gave us everything we need to do everything that God wants us to do as individual believers and as a church? That's, even that is in the cross, and then it's brought to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we're gifted through the finished work of Jesus, so we can do the work of ministry in order to accomplish the work of building the church up. Now I'm going to focus mainly on the first couple of parts of that statement this week. Preston will focus on uh, the last part of it next week. So let's kind of uh, dig into this. So number one, Jesus gifts all believers to serve by his grace. In other words, if you're saved, you're commissioned as a minister of Jesus Christ. You're saved to serve. You're gifted to minister. If you're really saved, I don't care if you've been a Christian one week or 70 years. I don't care if you're 12 years old or 73 years old. I don't care how old you are. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have spiritual uh, gifts. So, 
look at what he's saying here. First of all, and, and, and this is the foundation, and, and, and if you're not a Christian, this is how this message applies to you. Jesus came and set us free through his finished work. Aaron, uh, go back to verse 7, if you would. So it says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then it says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, led captivity captive, gave gifts to men. Then it says, now, this he ascended, what does it also mean? But that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, Bible scholars, Bible commentators debate this. There's kind of a couple of schools of thought on what this actually means. Some people think it refers to Jesus going down into Hades or hell. Uh, that's not my understanding of it. My understanding of it that this would be a reference to uh, the incarnation and then the ascension of Jesus. Jesus' humiliation as he descended and then his exaltation as he ascended where uh, Jesus is God, the eternal God who came from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, died is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, bodily rose from the dead, and then ascended to heaven where he now rules and reigns forevermore, where he's interceding for us, and where he sent his spirit to establish his church, to gift believers, to carry out his work on the earth as the hands and feet of Jesus as we are the body of Christ. That's my understanding of what these verses are saying, and that's foundational to understanding everything else in uh, the passage. Now, there's a phrase there, if you go back to verse 7 again, that I think it's important for us to understand. Sorry, verse 8. It says, when he ascended on high, and this is where he's quoting from Psalm 68, says, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, once again, this, this is a, a debated phrase, and, but this is what I, I, I think it means. I, I'm going to go with John MacArthur's explanation. I want you to listen to this because if you get this, I think it will really help you to understand what Jesus has done for you. He says, Psalm 68 is a victory hymn composed by David to celebrate God's conquest of the Jebusite city and the triumphant ascent of God represented by the Ark of the Covenant up Mount Zion. After a king won such a victory, he would bring home the spoils and enemy prisoners to parade before his people. An Israelite king would take his retinue through the holy city of Jerusalem up to Mount Zion. Now, but listen to this, though. Another feature of the victory parade, however, would be the display of the king's own soldiers who had been freed after being held prisoner by the enemy. I think that's what it's referring to here when it says he led captivity captive. So what would that mean? This, it means this. These were often referred to as recaptured captives, prisoners who had been taken prisoner again, so to speak, by their own king and given freedom. The phrase, when he ascended on high, depicts a triumphant Christ returning from battle on earth into the glory of the heavenly city with the trophies, which is us, of his great victory. In his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus Christ conquered Satan, sin, and death. And by that great victory, he led captive a host of captives who were once prisoners of the enemy, but now are returned to God and the people with whom they belong. Do you understand what that would mean if this is the correct interpretation? And I think it is. You know, the Bible says you commit sin is a slave of sin. We were all made in the image of God. We we're all made for a relationship with God. But we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so in a sense, we've been enslaved by sin and Satan and the world. We're spiritually dead. We've been taken captive. But Jesus came and sacrificed himself 
He died in our place to set the captives free. And now he is setting us free by his death, burial, and resurrection. Not only, the Bible says, is he triumphed over Satan and, 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 and the demons and made a public spectacle of, of them. But part of that, in a sense, someday when we go to heaven, he's going, we're going to be a part of this great victory parade. And then we're going to worship him forever, celebrating Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us and this eternal freedom that he's given us by his cross. And so that's the foundation of all of this. And then there's a phrase in there that's a pretty amazing phrase as well. Where it talks about how he's, he fills all things. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, a man named Clinton Arnold explains it this way. Uh, he says, in the exercise of his ruling sovereignty at the right hand of God, Christ is now unfolding a comprehensive plan for the universe. And, and we're a part of that. As Paul has already indicated in chapter 1, verse 10, this plan involves bringing all of creation under his lordship. Thus, filling all things has to do with extending his reign over all of his enemies, which again is the vision of Psalm 68 that Paul had cited earlier. At the present time, this filling involves the extension of the church through its evangelistic ministry. It also involves helping people to defeat the power of enemy in their lives and growing to the stature of Christ's fullness. But in the future, it will involve Christ bringing all of the re rebellious creation under his lordship. So Jesus is victorious. Someday he's going to come back and, and, and consummate that victory and he's going to be glorified forever. But in between, right now, he's working through his church to extend his rule and reign even more, to build his kingdom, to bring more people into his kingdom. And so the idea here of this is that he has given us gifts to use in this great spiritual war that's going on between him and, and, and Satan, that he's already won the victory, but to bring that victory actually into people's lives, he's given us spiritual gifts by his grace because in this day, he has chosen to work through us. And so when it talks about grace here, if, if you look back in verse uh, 7 uh, again, it, it says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he gives us grace through his finished work. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor, God's undeserved blessing. Grace is kind of like this. You know, when you married your spouse, if you're married, if you get married someday, you will probably marry someone that you love. Now, when we love someone going into marriage, that means that we're attracted to them and we're maybe even kind of infatuated with them. Now, what happens, psychologists say, is in a couple of years, we move out of the infatuation stage and then we have to decide if we're going to really love someone in a real love and not a Hallmark movie kind of sense. Okay, And so the reason that we, quote, love this person is because we're attracted to this person because we see these good qualities in them and, and, and things that we like 
in them, maybe not really love, but we, we like in this person. And, you know, maybe they make us feel warm and tingly. They make us feel good about ourselves. They look good. You know, we just go down the list. That's not grace, though. Grace is not God picking out someone that's attractive to him and choosing to bless that person. God would be like, uh, grace would be like us finding the person that would be the most repellent to us on the face of the earth, that has nothing to offer us, that would be like our enemy and choosing to marry that person. That's more what grace is like. And and, and the Bible speaks of of at least four kinds of grace. There's saving grace. Ephesians 2.89, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible speaks of sanctifying grace, that by his grace God is changing us and growing us and conforming us into the image of Christ. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Grace doesn't just forgive us, grace changes us us. They're sustaining grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, uh, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. They're sustaining grace in Jesus for whatever trial that you go through. But then what he's specifically referring to in the passage before us today is that they're serving grace. Another example in Scripture is 1 Peter 4.10. He says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're graced to serve God with the spiritual gifts that the Spirit bestows upon us through the cross, through the finished work of Jesus, and then by the Spirit, who we've already seen in in Ephesians has come to indwell the church, we are graced, we are gifted with spiritual gifts to complete uh, the, the work that Jesus calls us to do for him to work through us in bringing this victory that he won on the cross to more and more people. And so think about it. I mean, most of you here probably say, I'm thankful for saving grace. I'm uh, amazing grace. You know, God saved me by his grace. I I hope that you're relying on sanctifying grace. I know that you want grace when you're going through a trial. But are you thankful that God has graced you to serve him? That's a big part of the Christian life. Look at what Romans 12, uh, 3 through 8 says. It says, uh, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We're one but unique. We're uh, interdependent. He says, having then gifts differing, what? According to the grace... That is given to us. Remember he said in Ephesians 4, 7, according to the measure of, of Christ's gift. And when, and when you know, it comes to saving grace, we all have the same amount of grace. When it comes to serving grace, he measures it out in different measures to each believer, though, depending on what he's called us to do in our lives. 
Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, what's he say? Let us use them. Do your part. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with childrenness. In other words, he's saying do your part based on the gifts that he's given you according to his grace. Your part is what he's graced you to do. You have a grace zone that he wants you to live in. He doesn't expect you to do something that you're not graced to do, but he expects you to do everything that you are grace to do. So let's get real practical with this. Uh, so, I mean, what's this mean practically if this is true? If he's graced every believer in different measures to serve him, what's that mean? Okay, so let me just give you a few practical thoughts. One would be is that more grace equals more responsibility because we are stewards of the grace gifts that have been given to us. So, you may think, well, this person is more gifted than I am. That's not fair. Do you also realize that what that means is that that person also has more responsibility, more to answer for than you do? You see, because the, the way that, that God grades us is not like the grades we get in school. You know, you remember the parable of the talents in the Bibles, in the Bible in Matthew, you know, five talents, five talent return, two talents, two talent return, one talent, one talent return. And so here's the thing. Uh, somebody, you know, may have three gifts, but if they're only using two of them, say, that's like a 67. But if you have one gift and you're fully using it, you get 100. And so in a sense, you're doing better in the Lord's sight than the person with more gifts than you. Does that make sense? All we're responsible to do is to steward, to use, to do everything that God wants us to do with what he has given us to maximize that. You see, the way that God wants us to see this is that our gifts are undeserved blessings that we're to be thankful for, not things that we're to be proud of. I mean, if it's a gift of God by his grace through the Holy Spirit, what do we have to be proud of, number one, and, and, and number two, if how many, how many of us can say we're being such a good steward that we're giving 100% return on it, and unless we're doing that, we really don't have anything to be proud for anyway. Think about it. The things that we get to do in serving Jesus, that's an undeserved blessing. That's God working through human vessels when he could get it done a whole lot better on his own, right? He created everything in six days without any assistance from us. You know, he doesn't need us to build his church, but we need him. It's good for us. It's part of how he grows us. It's part of how he fulfills us. But we are, I mean, he's, we're vessels of clay, Paul talked about. God is choosing to work through fallible human beings, when I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors uh, was my preaching professor, Dr. Wayne McDill. You should be thankful for him, too, because, uh, you know, I preached better after I got done there. But uh, you know, Dr. McDill, I mean, most everybody loved him, uh, but, I mean, he was very blunt. He was very straightforward, which is really what you need. You need that kind of feedback. 
But he, he gave us an example one time. I think maybe somebody had maybe asked him a question like, you know, what, what should you do if somebody says, you know, well, that was a good sermon, pastor, or something like that, you know, gives you a compliment. And, and basically his response was, say thank you and move on with life. And he, he gave uh, this uh, example of that. He said one time uh, I, I was in a, in a church and, you know, listened to a pastor preach and, you know, he, he handled the word well. And so I told him that afterwards, said he did a good job. And, uh, you know, appreciate it. And so, so this guy, I guess, kind of fake, humble kind of thing, said, well, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And Dr. McDill's response was, it wasn't that good. <laughs> so, you know, God is using us, and it's not really that good. And what's good about it is coming from him, okay? We, we need to understand that. But, you know, I think about it, you know, it is an undeserved blessing from God that I get to stand up here and teach the Bible, that I get to go to Honduras this week, that I, I get to preach to a crowd of Micronesians uh, this afternoon in Jefferson City, Tennessee, and watch them baptize some more people, that I get to be a part of training pastors, at starting churches, get to be a part of a great church like True Life. And, and those things are undeserved uh, blessings from God. It, it's not something, uh, I mean, it's all by his grace. That, that's the idea uh, of this. And, and so, um, you know, they're undeserved gifts that we're stewards of. So I want you to see that serving is empowered by God's grace, that serving is both an expression of God's grace and a response to God's grace. And, and, and so all this means, really, if you want to live an obedient Christian life, you have to serve. But a better attitude is, I get to serve. Now, uh, a great example of that is, is last uh, Sunday, you know, we kind of did the greeting time in the middle of the service before the message. And I think it was the second service. I was standing up here, and, you know, y'all were having your party that you have uh, that we can't hardly stop when, when we do that. And, and, and you know, Travis who, uh, you know, his nickname used to be Rice Boy. Uh, you can ask him about the story sometime. Maybe we should call him Drummer Boy now. But uh, Travis Blazer, if you don't know him, is genuinely one of, the, like, just the nicest human beings that you will ever meet. And so I'm standing up here, and I guess he's doing whatever he's doing, you know, back at the drum kit, and then he's walking off the stage. He said, I'm so honored that I get to play and, you know, be a part of what God is doing here week in and week out. That's the kind of attitude that if we understand that this is a gift of God's grace that we will have. So just practically, that's how we need to look at this. Now, along with that, maybe kind of the flip side of this is once we understand those things, then there's some myths about ministry that we need to lose. Okay, here's a myth that only a select few are gifted and called to ministry. That's a myth. Now, I'm blessed. I get to do this full-time as a job. But every Christian is a minister. You may have a vocation, but that's your purpose, is to serve the Lord. In the church, in your day-to-day -day life, wherever you are, God wants to use you. Another myth is that a pastor is the minister of the church. He's a minister in the church, but according to verse 11 here, pastors are equippers of the church. Everybody is a minister in the church. I'm not supposed to do all the ministry in the church. There should be hundreds of people doing the ministry of True Life Church. Now, 
that doesn't mean that I don't minister uh, just because I'm a Christian, hopefully. You know, there's things you do. You share the gospel. There's things you do. You care for people just because you're a Christian. I'm going to be on the evangelism team in the boots on the ground ministry, not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. Um, not saying if you don't join a boots on the ground team, you're not a Christian, but uh, I mean, Steve, you want to, you know, maybe you want to run with that. But uh, I'd encourage you to attend one of the interest meetings for that after the service today, back in the uh, multi purpose room, conference room back there. Um, you know, it's a myth that ministry from a pastor is fundamentally different or better than ministry from any other Christian. Can I just tell you, there's nothing special when someone with the title pastor ministers to you that's any different than any other Christian ministering to you. In fact, it could be worse for you in, in, in some situations if a pastor ministers to you instead of somebody else. You say, what do you mean? Um, well, you're better off with the person who is the most spiritually gifted in the particular area that you need ministering to you. Does that make sense? Um, you know, we, we used to kind of have a joke around here when, when Susan Adams was my assistant. If somebody needed truth, they should come to me. If somebody needed mercy, they should go to her. I'm, I mean, I called her Miss Mercy. I mean, uh, I kind of wore her down, though, got her a little more prophetic by the time that, that, that she retired. But uh, it, it, we're, we're wired differently. That makes sense. I mean, you're, you're better off in, in a lot of cases. Now, in some cases, depending on what it is, you've got about the same thing. But in, in a lot of cases, you'd be better off going to uh, Lori Arwood for counseling than you would me because that's not my gift. That, that's her gift. And so there's nothing special uh, about a pastor. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this or thought about this, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with, with churches who do this, but if you ever thought about this, you've never seen my name on the sign outside of True Life Church. And, and, and there's really two reasons for that. One is because we have more than one pastor, and I want people to, to understand that. But two, it's because we're all the church, and we're all the ministers of the church together. And it's not like pastors are up here and everybody else is down here. Yes, pastors are called to lead, but that we're on the same level, maybe just out front in a different uh, kind of way. One of the VBS workers, I, I got a kick out of this, told me that, uh, you know, one of the kids, you know, I, was, I, I wasn't around VBS other than one night. I came and shared the gospel. And apparently, you know, he told his uh, group that, uh, well, well, Pastor Jimmy's going to be here to talk to us tonight. And one of the kids said, well, who's that? And uh, I think that's good. I mean, I think that's kind of the way that, that it should be because, you know, it's all of us working together. But what goes along with that, it's also a myth that you're not responsible for or capable of ministering in, in the name of Jesus. The Bible is very clear that every Christian has at least one spiritual gift. And, you know, here's a, just a quick look. At, at gifts that are listed in, in, in the New Testament. And, and Bible scholars debate whether or not this is exhaustive or if, if it's representative. And some, you know, there's debate about what's, uh, if all these gifts are available today. But the New Testament actually missions missionary, prophecy, evangelist, pastor, ministry or service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, uh, administration, celibacy. Do you know that was actually a spiritual gift? Uh, that, that, that's in the Bible. 
wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, discerning of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. I, I, I'd encourage you that if you uh, want to learn more about spiritual gifts, go on our, our trained up site and the actual spiritual gifts class. If you've not been on there before, it, there's a video of that on there. and You can learn more about spiritual gifts and that kind of thing. But let me just give you kind of a, a few quick suggestions for how we can discern what our spiritual gifts are and, and how to use them, okay? One thing uh, you can look at is, does it seem supernatural instead of natural? And, and what I mean by that is, do, does it seem like it's just not you? And, and, and maybe what I mean by that is, I, I don't know how many times I've had people tell me, like, it's like you're different when you're on stage. It's like you're different when you're teaching. And I mean, I really believe that's the Holy Spirit. That's a spiritual gift coming out of me that's not natural to me. Uh, I told you before, and I have time to tell the whole story. I mean, there, and there is a backstory behind it. It's maybe not quite as bad as it sounds. But, you know, True Life's been a part of starting a lot of churches since we started. But, you know, the first time I took Christian missions in seminary, I made an F in it. So uh, th there must be some kind of spiritual gift in there that's just not natural. So if you think God can't use you, just remember our teaching pastor who goes on all these mission trips flunked Christian missions in, in, in seminary. And so no excuses for you at that point, okay? Uh, if, if, something, if God's gifted you to do something, you find it fulfilling, satisfying, uh, energizing, um, you know, it's it, it just kind of like you come alive when you're doing it. I mean, there's just something that happens. It, it's kind of like, I was listening to Mark Clark preach this last week, and, you know, he kind of gave me language for a thought I've had, but it, it's just kind of like, you know, it doesn't matter what happens in my week. I can kind of step on this stage on Sunday, and everything slows down, and there's a calm, and there's a peace, and that's kind of what you feel like when you're using your spiritual gifts. I mean, it, it energizes you. There's an excitement. That doesn't mean I'm not, you know, tired on Sunday night and that kind of thing. But, you know, it, it, it fulfills you. There, there's been times when I've been in Honduras uh, teaching in, in one of the seminary classes and just had this feeling come over me if I'm doing exactly what God put me on the earth to do. That's what happens when we're functioning in our spiritual gifts. And there's not a, a lot better feeling than that. Um, you know, when we're using our spiritual gift, others affirm us in the use of that gift. Like, I mean, if you're functioning in, in your gift, probably some people are going to say it's helped them. It, it's ministered to them. The use of the gift yields spiritual fruit. Like, you probably shouldn't say that you have the spiritual gift of evangelism if you've never led anybody to Christ. Right? You probably shouldn't say you have the gift of teaching if people run when they hear, I mean run away, if they hear that you're going to be leading a Bible study. Right? I mean, there's fruit that comes uh, from that. And, and you know, sometimes we, we, some, we can you know, be okay at something. Uh, I mean, we can do enough to, to get by or we, we can function in it. I mean, there's just things we just need to do. 
But then, like, when somebody's really gifted at something and you really see a lot of fruit in it, then it shows you don't have that gift. Like, for me, I think the people I work with would tell you that I'm a competent administrator, that I'm pretty well organized. If you look at my desk, you might not believe that, but uh, it's, it's all written down somewhere or on my computer. But, like, when, when you, like John Harrell, he's doing a fantastic job leading our Honduras ministry, and John is about the most gifted administrator that you ever meet. He'll run the world from a color-coded spreadsheet of whatever it is. I mean, I feel a little sorry for Lindsay sometimes, actually. But, uh, I mean, so when someone is really gifted in something comes along, you can see maybe you're not gifted in it. Maybe you can function in it, but it's not really your gift. But a gift is going to bear fruit. And then you say, well, if I got a gift, you know, different gifts can be used in, in, in a lot of different ways. I mean, someone could have the gift of teaching, and maybe you're a pastor. Someone could have the gift of teaching, and maybe, you know, you're teaching in children's church. But what we're passionate about, that shows maybe how we ought to use our gifts. Maybe you're passionate uh, about adoption, or you're passionate uh, about fighting for the life of the unborn. You're passionate about human traffic, trafficking. Use your gifts there. Or maybe what breaks your heart. That's a good clue to how you ought to use your gifts. Kind of the Nehemiah principle. His heart was broken because the wall was broken down. And so, you know, he set the course of his life to do something about it. If something's breaking your heart, pray and ask God, what can I do about this? And put your gifts to work and let him use you in life. So we're all, all believers are gifted by the grace of God to serve him. But I want you to notice in verse 11, and I have to hit this quickly, is that Jesus gifts some believers to lead and equip others. And, and the emphasis when it comes to equipping in the New Testament is, is on the word of God. But, but he, he gives five spiritual gifts here and four offices in verse 11. Now, this is a little bit of a complicated subject, and Christians are going to have different convictions about it. I'll tell you what I believe. So I believe that there's a spiritual gift of apostle today that's basically being a cross-cultural missionary. I feel like this is one of my spiritual gifts, and, and, and that's why, you know, do what I do in starting churches and those kind of things. I believe there's a spiritual gift of prophecy today, someone who can speak forth the word of God. And usually prophets are real black and white, and they call out sin and those kind of things. There's a spiritual gift of an evangelist, someone who's just gifted at leading people to Christ, and that's their passion. They can equip others in leading people to Christ. If you know an evangelist, you know they'd share the gospel with a light pole. I mean, they just can't help it. It just oozes out of them. Now, every Christian is to be an evangelist. Right, We're all to share the gospel, but if, if, some, if someone, that's their spiritual gift, that's where they're going to be really, really effective. There's a spiritual gift of teaching. There's a spiritual gift of pastoring, uh, of shepherding. Now, our understanding of the New Testament of true life is only men are called to the office of pastor, but some of you ladies, because you know all the spiritual gifts are for men and women, some of you ladies have a spiritual gift of shepherding that's maybe not to be used in the office of pastor, but it's to be used in shepherding people in different ways. And, and so uh, there's these five spiritual gifts. Now, the offices, I believe the office of apostle and prophet ceased in the early church. There's no apostles today, because to be an apostle, you had to be a part of the earthly ministry of Jesus and see the resurrected Christ. 
prophets in the early church uh, not only foretold, they foretold. They gave new revelation from God. God's not giving new revelation today. We have the complete revelation of God in his word. There's not an office of prophet today. I mean, if someone's adding to scripture, they're a heretic at, at this point. So there's not those two offices. There's those gifts. So today, God is working through evangelists who, Kent Hughes says, they're kind of like the obstetricians in the church. They're birthing babies, and then you've got pastors, teachers, because it's, you can put it together as one in, in, in the Greek who are then helping those babies grow up. And so God gifts some believers to lead and equip others. But then we see, just to kind of tie all this together, that Jesus calls all believers to minister together for the building up of the church. Verse 12 again. He himself gave some to be apostles. Verse 11. Some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints. For uh, the work of ministry. For the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. So in other words, if we're not all using our gifts and serving, the body's not going to be built up. If, if leaders aren't leading and equipping, the body is not going to be built up. So now, think about this. Like I said, I'm supposed to minister because I'm a Christian, but if I'm spending all of my time ministering instead of equipping, the church isn't going to be built up because the key to a church being built up, and, and, and this is how, this is, you know, kind of what guides me as a pastor. I, I'm focusing on teaching. Uh, developing leaders, discipling people, training people, starting churches. Why? Because I believe I'm called to equip you all to use your gifts. And if you're being equipped and you're using your gifts, there's going to be a whole lot more done for the kingdom if hundreds of people or even thousands of people as we plant churches are ministering and using their gifts instead of me just trying to minister myself. Does that make sense? That's how this is supposed to work. And so there's honestly some things here that a lot of us may have to unlearn a little bit. Because a lot of you, didn't you grow up in a church where it was the model? The pastor, he was the super hired spiritual handyman who could do it all. You needed something. And you, you went to him and everybody else just kind of either approved or disapproved. Maybe they gave, maybe they helped some. That is an unbiblical view of church. And honestly, that's part of the reason why so many churches in East Tennessee are struggling and declining. It's not a biblical model of ministry. You're called to do your part. You're gifted to do your part. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades were not going to prevail against it. In one of his summary statements in the book of Acts, Luke wrote in Acts 9, 31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, and they were edified, they were built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. That's biblical church growth, edified and multiplied, spiritually built up, but then multiplying through reaching people for Christ, starting new groups, starting new churches, expanding, building the kingdom of God. It takes all of us working together, using our gifts, doing our part to make that happen. So, are you doing your part? Are you using your gifts? So, let me just ask you these two questions in closing. 
you want to be a part of a church that's declining? Do you want to be a part of a church that's dying? Do you want to be a part of a church that's a handful of 75 and 80-year-olds just kind of hanging on, just trying to, you know, keep the doors open, no kids, no vision, no real hope for the future? We could drive around right now and go to multiple churches like that in just a few minutes. You want to be a part of that kind of church? You want to be a part of a church that's not reaching anybody for Jesus? You want to be a part of a church that's not making any disciples? You want to be a part of a church that's not making any difference in the world? Or do you want to be a part of a church that's growing? Do you want to be a part of a church that's alive and vibrant? Do you want to be a part of a church that people, where people are getting saved and people are getting baptized? Do you want to be a part of a church where people's lives are being changed, families are being transformed? Uh, you want to be a part of a church where marriages are being restored? you want to be a part of a church where addicts are getting set free? Do you want to be a part of a church that's making a difference in the community and in the world? Do you want to be a part of a church that's doing missions? Do you want to be a part of a church that's planning other churches and seeing multiplication? happen? Do you want to be a part of a church that's being a part of building the kingdom of God? If you want to be a part of a church like that, you know what all you can do is to make that happen? You can do your part. You can use your gifts. You can do what God's calling you to do. You can be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. You can be obedient and let the Holy Spirit work through you by using what he's already put within you, your spiritual gifts, at the moment of salvation to make a difference in the world. I mean, if, if you're a Christian, on some level, this is a, just a matter of obedience or disobedience. And thank you to so many of you who are doing your part, who are using your gifts. But honestly, some of you need to step up and obey and not presume on the grace of God. Not, not look to God for his saving grace and his sanctifying grace and his sustaining grace and ignore the serving grace that he's given you. Do your part. That's what he's called you to do. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.